Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Hey, very glad you're with us for the Tuesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Your stool is ready, and we are talking about the things you are talking about today and hopefully every day. Uh, let's talk about our good martini for the day, and that came to us yesterday, courtesy of a federal court ruling from U.S. District Judge Catherine Kimball Mizell, or Mizell perhaps. Uh, she ruled that the federal mask mandate on planes, trains, buses, and other modes of public transportation is unlawful. Uh, she wrote in a summary filed Monday that the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention had exceeded its authority and failed to follow proper rulemaking procedures. In a 59-page ruling, Mazel argues that the mandate violates the Administrative Procedure Act as the agency failed to prove its decision regarding implementing the mandate. And this is uh, just one example of how it was received during a flight as the ruling came down. This one's from Delta. On our Delta hub, it says mask now optional for employees, customers, following White House. And so they said right then and there, masks are optional. There was one video of a flight attendant walking through the aisle with a bag collecting masks if people wanted to ditch them. And so over at the White House, um, Jen Psaki says this is obviously a disappointing decision. The CDC continues recommending wearing a mask in public transit. And for those who didn't like the decision, all of a sudden the gender and the age of this judge became significant, Jim. It's okay when it's a, uh, a conservative appointee. This was a Trump-appointed judge who had clerked for Clarence Thomas. She's 35 years old, and so the vitriol was out for her early and often yesterday. But I think you and I would both agree, Jim, uh, this is a long time coming, and it's finally here. Yeah. One of the things that jumps out is that this was always we were always going to have some place in the country that was going to be the last spot you were going to have to wear masks. And at some point that place was going to say, OK, the, the case numbers are down, the uh, prevalence, you know, the, the vaccination rates are high enough. The booster rates are high enough. Omicron tore through us in January and February, and now cases have been very low. Hospitalization, just checked this morning, hospitalizations down, ICU use down, deaths are down from COVID-19. It's, you know, we're good. You're now free to move about the country, as they used to say in the Southwest commercials. So, you know, that's fine. It's interesting. There are certain people who are adamant that the mask mandate was popular. These are serious cases of Pauline Kaleism, of everybody I know, you know, likes it. Polling shows the mask mandate is very unpopular with the majority of the American people. Oh, by the way, it was also unpopular with the major airlines because they dropped it almost immediately. And the flight attendants union, as well as the U.S. Senate, which passed a resolution to end it. So public opinion has been pretty clear on this. The numbers, the science numbers are there. And those of us have kind of, you know, who, who've been, you know, once the pandemic had passed through, we're like, OK, it's time to allow kids to not wear masks to school if they don't want to. It's time to make masking optional. By the way, you're still allowed to wear a mask on a plane if you want to. You can still wear your mask in the airport. You can wear your mask wherever you want. And by and large, unless there's a handful of jerks, people, all right, fine. If that's what you want to do. You're, you feel you have a particular higher risk. Fine. That's fine. Go ahead and do it. People just don't want to have to wear a mask because you say they do. And yet this the reaction to this on social media has been fascinating. The sheer number of people who just believe no, the, the consequence of the COVID-19 pandemic would be that Americans would wear masks on planes forever, that, that there would not be exceptions, that this would never end. And that was never a realistic option. But I think there are certain people who decided that they're wearing a mask became a tribal signifier 
and really enjoyed the ability to make other people who they already did not like do things they didn't want to do, even if it was not justifiable uh, in the name of public health. So I'm glad this will be this. This is uh, shaken out the way it has. I suppose there's always a slim chance that there's a variant that comes along that is uh, resistant to our current vaccines and stuff. And it's different enough from previous strains that you don't have as much protection. But for now, the mask mandate is gone. And I think we a lot of us hope that it stays gone. Yeah, I certainly hope so, too. And I remember I was out in San Diego uh, a couple of weeks ago and uh, in the uh, announcements before the flight left on on one of the flights, the flight attendant was basically saying, we only have to do this for one or two more weeks, whatever, however long it was before uh, the deadline was at that point, which was uh, April 18th. So it was obvious that a lot of people in the industry who even have to enforce the mandate uh, were sick of it and had to wear them all day long, too. So I think this is ultimately a win-win for the Biden administration. Saki says that you know they're waiting for the Justice Department to decide if they'll challenge this. But they didn't have to make the decision. So, you know, the the decision's been made unless they challenge it. And then if, uh, you know, uh, heaven forbid, there is a, a nasty outbreak again somewhere along the way with a different variant, they can always claim it wasn't their decision. Yeah. I, look, I, I think th- this is might be one of the, uh, despite what Saki said yesterday, this might be one of those don't throw me into that briar patch type situations. Because there are not a lot of things going right for the administration, as we've discussed on many editions of our podcast. This is something that's going their way. And that they, I think that, I was just chatting with a couple of my colleagues. They do wonder if they would not like the idea of a federal judge overruling the administration's policy unilaterally. And I just like to introduce them to the entire history of the Trump administration. So, Jim, you know, it was supposed to be Independence Day last July 4th, and now they're grousing that uh, the mask mandate is is over uh, more than seven months later. Sorry, nine months later. Uh, where's my math? But uh, nonetheless, uh, hopefully this is uh, a big step towards officially getting back to normal. Certain businesses, I'm sure doctor's offices are going to hang on to it longer. Some of them might do it permanently. I don't know. But uh, a lot of people were clamoring for this, and they've got it. So uh, a good day. And also a sign that the pandemic is certainly waning, which is perhaps the best news of all. All right, Jim, let's move on to our first great sponsor of the day, and that is Quip Electric Toothbrushes. Look, good health starts with good habits, and good health is also connected to good oral health. And Quip makes it all easy by delivering all of the oral care essentials that you need to care for your mouth. The Quip Electric Toothbrush is beloved by more than 7 million mouths. It has timed sonic vibrations with 30-second pulses to guide a dentist-recommended two-minute clean. It's got a lightweight and sleek design for both adults and kids with no wires or bulky charger to weigh you down. The multi-use travel cover doubles as a mirror mount for less clutter in your bathroom. It has reusable handles and a range of sleek metal hues, including the best-selling all black and all pink, as well as bright plastic colors sure to make a pop to your bathroom counter. And if you're on top of your brushing, you can upgrade your Quip with a new smart motor to track and improve your brushing with the free Quip app, and you can earn amazing rewards like free refills, products, Target gift cards, and more. My kids have the Quip Electric Toothbrush. I told you my wife stole mine, and you know that it works great because they love them. They're also great to travel with. Uh, very, very convenient. So if you go to getquip.com slash martini right now, you'll get your first refill for free. That's your first refill free at getquip.com slash martini. That's spelled G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash martini. Quip is the good habits company. All right, Jim, on to our bad martini now. And uh, Taylor Lorenz has become a fairly notorious uh, reporter, uh, kind of out there 
uh, figuring out which conservative she's going to uh, stalk and expose is one of her favorite words, as we'll see here in just a minute. However, because of her reporting, she's been called out by a number of folks on the right. And as a result, she's uh, apparently gotten some pretty vicious blowback, uh, some of which is uh, not even suitable to put on the podcast here. It's beyond the pale. And we should point that out. Uh, in fact, she was uh, on a, a story for MSNBC, or maybe it was just NBC, uh, a couple of weeks ago talking about how hurtful this has been for her. There's many people that are tweeting, um, you know, here's, these are Taylor Lorenz's loved ones. They have everyone. photos. Wow, these are all photos of your family members. Yeah. Children. All, yeah. They'll, they'll threaten children. They'll threaten my parents. I've had to remove every single social tie. I had severe PTSD from this. I, I contemplated suicide. It got really bad. You feel like any little piece of information that gets out on you will be used by the worst people on the internet to destroy your life. And it's so isolating. And terrifying. It's horrifying. And so you can empathize with that, certainly, Jim, uh, for some of the horrific things that she's heard. But she keeps doing kind of the same thing towards people on the right. The latest example of this is that she was soliciting comments because she was saying, quote, and this is her email to Ron DeSantis's press secretary, Christina Pusha, I'm a tech reporter at the Washington Post. We are running a story exposing the woman behind the libs of TikTok account. Our story mentions your many interactions with the account and praise of it. If you'd like to offer comment, please let me know within the next hour. You can give me a ring on such and such a number if you prefer. That part was blacked out in in Christina's tweet about it. And so, um, you know, this is a Twitter account that basically goes around showing hypocrisy among liberal figures on Twitter. Here's their tweet against Trump or somebody else on the right and then having the exact opposite position when a figure on the left is in the crosshairs for something very similar. Uh, and, uh, and and so they're basically just using the left's own words against them. But somehow this person needs to be exposed. And uh, also Christina Pusha or Pusha, I don't know how you say that, uh, the press secretary for Ron DeSantis, uh, has some insight on this. She says, uh, here's why private citizen libs of TikTok incurred the wrath of Washington Post Taylor Lorenz. Degenerate progressives posted public videos about how they have sexually explicit conversations with minors. Then the libs of TikTok reposted those videos and the degenerates faced professional consequences. So, uh, Jim, whether that's the reason uh, this is happening or not, going after an anonymous Twitter account as though somehow it is influencing vastly the talking points of everybody politically on the right, which is basically the the premise for this piece, uh, is insane. So should Taylor Lorenz be treated the way she has been? No, but she should know better then to treat other people in a similar fashion. Yeah, look, this is a deeply frustrating story because each bad, you know, you know, Taylor Lorenz from where I sit is probably one of the most, let's just say bad. I could use a lot of other adjectives there, but you know, one of the worst members of the modern journalistic uh, cadre um, in part because her beat social media, I think tends to spotlight some of the least meaningful and important aspects of our political world elevating it to, you know, the sort of uh, consequence that most people would reserve for the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, And it really seems to specialize in exposing people who post things anonymously, 
which some people see as good old-fashioned shoe leather journalism and others see as as doxing, exposing the personal details, often the home addresses, phone numbers, things like that of people who do not wish to have their identities exposed out to the world. Now you could argue libs of TikTok does that in a way, the libs of TikTok basically goes through Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and things like that, and finds people, and lately it's had a lot of attention, particularly on teachers who are talking about with pride how much they, I think the one that I remember very distinctly was, they don't have an American flag in the classroom, but they have a rainbow flag in the classroom, and how this teacher kind of giggled and enjoyed how much she had the flag, had the class do the Pledge of Allegiance to the rainbow flag and not to the American flag. Now, if you're dumb enough to be a teacher and then put this out onto social media, don't blame libs of TikTok for bringing, calling the world's attention to it. You were the one dumb enough to say to the world, hey, this is what I'm doing. I do see my job as indoctrinating your children and basically living down to the stereotype of the you know nose-ringed, maniacal left-winger who isn't really all that interested in teaching the kids reading, writing, and arithmetic, but interested in teaching them um, you know, the, the most far left extremes of modern democratic politics. So, but obviously, you know, libs of TikTok is starting to decide, well, well, this, well, we can't have somebody anonymous doing this. No, no, no. The world must know. Oh, by the way, this is the same newspaper that had really no interest in Hunter Biden's laptop. Uh, and with the entire social media world that shut down the links to the New York Post reporting on Hunter Biden's laptop because it just wasn't newsworthy. In fact, it might be Russian disinformation. We were warned <laughs> by all of those retired intelligence officials. But who's behind libs of TikTok? Oh, that's something we absolutely positively need to do. Now, the great irony here is that, look, if, you know, um, if Taylor Lorenz really has had those experiences of having pictures of your kids and having pictures of your uh, other relatives opposed, sent to you with threatening messages. That's terrible. Nobody should have to go through that. I do think, though, like that's not special. That's not unique. That happens to everybody uh, or almost everybody, it seems. Um, I've gotten my share of death threats. It sucks. It's not good. You know, you forward them to the FBI. You know, the FBI is not going to do anything about it. But if, God forbid, somebody actually does kill you, then you've at least got you know some record of that. I would point out that my colleague, Charlie Cook, pointed out he spoke to someone in law enforcement and said, you really don't have to worry about somebody who sends you a threatening message to your email account or something. They're, they're not going to do it. They're blowing off steam. They're all talk and they're no action. The person you have to worry about is the person who, does, the per, if somebody intends to kill you, they're not going to send you an email ahead of time, which is not all that reassuring when you think about <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, not too but comforting. Anyway, that's... <laughs> Welcome to modern journalism. It's it's baked in the cake. And if it's the sort of thing is it's serious enough to make you contemplate suicide, as Taylor Lorenz says, maybe modern journalism is not for you. I, I hate to say that. I hate to inform, but like, really, like you do have to have a development ability to know that you particularly when you are a social media reporter, you know, you're going to get pushback on Twitter. You're going to get pushback on YouTube and Instagram and all these other things. And it's often going to be nasty. Welcome to social media. That's part of the that's baked in the cake. And it really feels like Taylor Lorenz has decided that because she's had this bad experience of having her stuff, stuff that she believes should be kept private, exposed out to the world, that she's decided she's going to turn around and do it to everybody else she doesn't like. And she cannot see the glaring contradiction between the behavior she decries and the extraordinarily similar behavior that she practices. Um, it is a deeply frustrating illustration of the state of modern journalism. And I'll point out, Taylor Lorenz was hired by the Washington Post after many years at the New York Times, where I loved her expose on the difficult lives of social media influencers during the pandemic, Greg. <laughs> 
that one probably didn't get quite as much blowback. But uh, yeah, this is you know reminiscent to me at least of the time CNN just had to find out who made that GIF of uh, Trump clotheslining mm. CNN when he was really clotheslining Vince McMahon at a WrestleMania uh, years before. That was just beyond the pale. Uh, that one had to be exposed. It's almost like yeah. uh, remember the rodeo clown too. We had to find out who that guy was and make his life miserable too because he had an Obama mask at a rodeo like a decade ago or something. Uh, Greg, so. I'm going to do something that I really hate to do. Okay. And that is, I have to give Matthew, Matt Iglesias credit. Uh, you maybe remember him, formerly of Vox, now who's uh, doing his own writing and his own little personal newsletter there. <laughs> Political newsletters. They'll never <laughs> take off. Um, but just kind of observe, and he goes through and he kind of says, okay, if Taylor Lorenz had wanted to write an op-ed that basically said, libs of TikTok is bad, Go ahead. You, you can do that. Right. You can. You, it's not just the, the you know, argument about opinion journalism versus news journalism. It is kind of pretending. What is the point of the story of here's who's behind libs of TikTok? What is the news value? What, what is important there? And the short there really isn't much anything there. They, you know, they, they basically this is who it is. She's uh, apparently got a real estate uh, works in real estate or something. And, uh, you know, I think a couple of people have noted that the right around Passover, this article is noting that she's an Orthodox Jewish woman. OK. Um, you know, the, what, what's the news value? Why do we need to know who is the person behind libs of TikTok? What, what do we learn? What is it significant? Now, I'll admit, if this person was, you know, wanted as an action murderer, okay, then you got a news story there, right? But basically, the pretty the aim of this is meant to either a get lots of people harassing the person behind libs of TikTok, and or get the creator of libs of TikTok in trouble at work, right? That, that that's what we know. This is how cancel culture works, right? Um, and so what Iglesias points out is that there's great value in a strongly argued opinion piece. There is great value in straight news reporting. And he describes what, what Lorenz has done as uncanny valley stuff, takes that are structured as news stories through the alchemy of experts say, but it turns out to actually just be an op-ed piece designed to say, hey, this person is bad, don't you hate this person? And I hate to say it, but, ugh, good job, Matt Iglesias. <laughs> He's he's lurched well towards sanity in the last few years. I'm not saying he's uh, you know never going to stop being a guy on the left, but uh, he's making a lot more sense than he used to. I don't think it's just getting out of Vox, but I'm I'm sure that helped. <laughs> but uh, uh, he's he's come up with some takes that I would have not expected from him just a few years ago. Yeah, and the thing is, that it's a really well reasoned point, which is that if if Taylor Lorenz was a op-ed columnist, we'd be irked by her, but it would be a little bit more justifiable. Okay, you know, she's an opinion columnist. You know, that, you know uh, she would be as irksome as, you know, Paul Krugman or something like that. But now the idea that she's the social media and tech journalist and that what she's doing is news that really drives us crazy. Well, I think if she wrote just the libs of TikTok column, we wouldn't be talking about it. And that's yeah. why she didn't write that column and she wrote this instead. And so that's that's why we are where we're at. And so it's not to say that she deserves to be uh, treated in shameful fashion uh, again, but she doesn't seem to understand that uh, uh, other people don't want to be treated that way either because she's going to incur the wrath of plenty of people towards the creator of this site. So on and on we go. All right, let's talk about something much more pleasant than that, and that is the fantastic deal you can get on the MyPillow six-piece towel set. I do love these towels. Uh, every day. Uh, favorite towel set I've ever had. Uh, big, soft, fluffy, thick, get you dry real fast. And they stay that way, wash after wash. And the deal now, the towels, usually $109.99, on sale for just $39.99 a set. Now, you might be wondering, where does the cotton used in the MyPillow six-piece towel set come from? Well, if you've been listening to this podcast, you've probably heard me mention that the cotton is grown right here 
in the United States. Now, some other towels might feel good, but they don't absorb well. Or they absorb well, but they don't feel good. They've got that lotion-y feel. Well, every MyPillow towel was made from proprietary technology that makes them highly absorbent and soft to the touch. Every set comes with two bath towels, two hand towels, and two washcloths. They're available in a variety of colors and sizes. They're machine washable, and they have a 60-day money-back guarantee and a one-year limited warranty. For a limited time, get the MyPillow six-piece towel set, regularly $109.99 for only $39.99 with the promo code MARTINI. Visit MyPillow.com slash MARTINI or call 800-874-0104. You'll also find deep discounts on all MyPillow products, including the MyPillow mattress topper, MyPillow Giza Dream Sheets, and so much more. Get your six-piece MyPillow towel set for only $39.99 today at MyPillow.com slash Martini or call 800-874-0104. All right, Jim, on to our crazy Martini now. And it's been a little while since we've uh, talked about Beta O'Rourke, uh, former congressman, then, of course, uh, the darling of the left as he challenged Ted Cruz for the Senate in 2018. Didn't win, but came fairly close, certainly in terms of the standards set by most Texas Democrats. That prompted him to run for president briefly. That fizzled out pretty badly, although he did admit that he wants to take your guns. Now he's running for governor of Texas. He's already won the nomination, and he's tried to sound a little more moderate on some issues. He says he no longer wants to take your guns. And then for a while, he said Biden needs to do a better job on the border, and that seemed to include... You know, enforcing Title 42, the Remain in Mexico policy, keeping people over there while their asylum claims and other claims are adjudicated here in the United States. Well, as he appeared with uh, Jonathan Capehart on MSNBC over the weekend, Capehart assumed Beto O'Rourke still held that position since he uh, stated it not that long ago. Well, no. Beto has changed back to the left. Here's that exchange. But I want to turn our uh, attention to, to Title 42. You don't think it's a good idea for the Biden administration to end Title 42. Why? No, I, I think it's time to end Title 42. Okay. I don't think we should have ever implemented it. It's a very cynical reading of U.S. law that, again, has done nothing to improve public health or safety. And when I listen to Border Patrol agents who are patrolling on the border, they tell me it actually increases the number of migrant crossing attempts. It creates more chaos because, Jonathan, as you know, those agents are forced to turn away those migrants and asylum seekers without processing them, detaining them, or allowing them to apply for asylum. So they're crossing again and again, maybe every single day of the week. Yeah, the Border Patrol's not opposed to Title 42, first of all, at least uh, uh, en masse. Secondly, Jim, do you love the logic there at the end? This is a huge problem, Title 42, because if we just let all these people in the first time they tried to get in, these border numbers wouldn't look so bad. So my first thought, uh, you picked up on the same thing I did, Greg, where sometimes you just want to, you know, <laughs> um, when, a, uh, when somebody makes a claim like that, I'd really like him to name which Border Patrol officers have told him Title 42 is a problem. In particular, that Title 42 was drawing more migrants. I'd really love to know how that worked. The idea that we are keeping you outside of the United States because as a COVID-19 precaution, why would that make more people in Central America want to come to the United States? It makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. And so I, my, my argument is that, no, he's never spoken to any Border Patrol agents who told him that. He just want, knows that this is a really implausible argument and he wants to attribute it to a U.S. Border Patrol agent. The second thing is that Beto O'Rourke is he's not anything right now. He's not he's not a former he's a former congressman. He's not in any. So why are Border Patrol agents like giving him briefings? I'm, I'm kind of left, you know, uh, unless he's getting together with them after hours or something. But it just doesn't make none of nothing of what he said makes sense. And I think he's just making it all up. Um, 
But the second thing is at the heart of Beto O'Rourke, we can we can make fun of him for his uh, rock band days and the glowing profiles back in 2018 and being a furry and jumping up on the counter at the diners and all the all the Beto things that he used to do. But I think at the heart of it, look, Texas is a big, red, conservative Republican state, and it's been that way for a good long time. El Paso. Now, if you look closely at that map, county by county or, or region by region, there are some blue corners. El Paso is one of them. Actually, the big cities, Dallas, Houston, also have a whole bunch of Democrats in there. They just are dwarfed by all the other Republican voters living elsewhere in the rest of that very big state. So from the very beginning, Beto O'Rourke has kind of sold himself back to 2018. I am the Democrat who could win statewide in Texas. And as I've written many times, Democrats yearn for that. Because if they could actually actually disguise, you know, find it, it's like the the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, the leprechauns, right? If they could ever lucky lucky O'Rourke, he'll give you the the gold, you know. Um, if they could find it, well, then theoretically you put that person on a ticket, and not only do Democrats win the presidency, they win the presidency by a huge margin, by winning because they win Texas and then they win California, which they almost always which they always win New York, which they always win, and you know, they can they can afford to lose Ohio and Florida and places like that. But the thing is, is that it's really, really tough for a Democrat to win in Texas. Give him credit, came close against Ted Cruz in a very good year for Democrats. And Ted Cruz has his own challenges as a candidate. But Ted Cruz still won anyway. So if you're a Democrat and you really wanted to win statewide, you'd have to probably run as a really conservative Democrat. And then I think you might have a chance. I'm not saying it's guaranteed. Uh, but I think there's room for like... If, if Joe Manchin ran, he'd probably be a strong and competitive candidate against your, your typical Republican or something like that. Um, Better work is not that. And here's the other thing. If you want to get that massive amount of you know nationwide uh, donations from the progressive grassroots, you've got to be a progressive candidate. So now Beto O'Rourke is trying to be two people at once. He's trying to be the progressive that can retain that Democratic grassroots donor network from 2018. And he's trying to be conservative enough to actually get elected. And unsurprisingly, it doesn't work. He'd have to split himself into two people. And it's just, you know, it's not uh, it's not going to function. It's one of the reasons I suspect Democrats are much less enthusiastic about him this year than they have been for the last two cycles. And let's face it, the presidential bid wasn't that sterling a success either. <laughs> so why do you think he's swinging back to the left? Is he planning something beyond this gubernatorial race? Or does he actually think it's more important to get the base fired up than uh, try to win over the middle, which he probably can't? Well, you know, you go left, you get money. It's true. I mean, there's that, you know, like, and it may very well be that he, he looked at it and realized to be conservative enough to win the governor's race in Texas, he'd have to do enough so much that would alienate his donor base. And there's still no guarantee he'd actually win in what looks like it's going to be a good year for Republicans. So in the end, maybe you just, maybe it's more comfortable to have that giant donor list and hope that at some point there's some, you know, uh, statewide race in Texas with a particularly vulnerable incumbent or an open seat or something like that. But um I would not count on that. It's got, I think you got your finger on the pulse of this. It's got to be about the money because uh, being in favor of ending Title 42 in Texas right now yeah. is not exactly <laughs> reading the room. <laughs> Hell yes, we're going to take your AR-15. <laughs> Beto's always kind of given the vibe that he was running for, you know, Manhattan or something like that. <laughs> yeah, we want two and a half times the number of people flooding to the border, which is what the uh, Department of Homeland Security expects if this, in fact, expires. So uh, well done, Beto. You just turned that from a 10-point loss into a, probably 20 or 30. But uh, anyway, we can hope at least. Jim, see you tomorrow.
See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. Do subscribe to the podcast if you don't already. Thank you very much, as always, for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Uh, please get us on your home devices. All you have to say is play 3 Martini Lunch podcast. Follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great Tuesday, and please join us again on Wednesday for the next 3 Martini Lunch. The mainstream media shies away from the simple questions with hard answers that we all need to hear. I'm Byron York from The Byron York Show. Every day on the No Chit Chat podcast, I bring you the reality of what's going on in our government and around the country with no extra fluff. In my latest episodes, I lay out the blunt facts of what's going on in the District of Columbia, the way the media is misleading the public, and plans that political parties are making. Concise, comprehensible news is what America needs and deserves. I'm here to deliver. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.